Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah and uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, or rather chapter 9, verse 38, uh, and we're going to be uh, looking at that from there to the end of chapter 10. Uh, since it's been about a month uh, since we've looked at Nehemiah, just a, a very brief uh, reminder of where we've got to. Uh, so chapters 1 to 7 of this book uh, focused on the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem uh, that had been uh, ruined and uh, destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, Israel uh, had, moved, had been allowed to return to the land uh, but the walls had not been rebuilt. The city was in trouble and disgrace. And Nehemiah, recognizing this trouble, uh, goes back to Jerusalem and leads the work of rebuilding the walls. That's completed very quickly. Uh, and in chapter 8, after that work is completed, uh, the people uh, call out to uh, Ezra, the, 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 the teacher of the law, to bring out the book bring out the book of the law of Moses. Uh, Ezra brings out the book. He reads it to them. Uh, and They recognize their sin as they look in the mirror of God's word. Uh, and in chapter 9, they confess their sins to God. And the story continues now uh, from Nehemiah 38. So we're in the midst here uh, after the rebuilding of the walls uh, of a revival uh, amongst the people, a revival of God's spirit at work among the people of God. So after confessing their sins, we come to chapter 9 and verse 38. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from verse 38. I'm not going to read tonight for the sake of time uh, all of the names in the lists, uh, but I'll explain as we go, uh, just read what those lists are about. So verse 38 says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. And then he gives a list of the names of the priests. In verses 9 to 13, uh, the Levites... And from verses 14 to 27, uh, a list of the leaders of the people. Then from chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand... All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. 
Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our, our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. Well, we're now uh, entering uh, into the third week of January, believe it or not. Uh, and it's about this time that many people's New Year's resolutions begin to fall by the wayside. I don't know if that's true of any of you, things you decided at the end of last year, and we get to this time of year and they fall apart. Uh, making resolutions, I think, during the cold and dark months probably is not a recipe for success. Uh, apparently, it is better to make resolutions in the springtime uh, when the climate is warmer uh, and the mornings are lighter. But when is it a good time to make resolutions or commitments to God? Well, in one sense, isn't it the case that we should wake up every day committed to living for him? But there are also times in our lives when God shows us our sin in special ways as we look into the mirror of his word. And in fact, I would say that through our Christian lives, we are often showed our sins, sometimes in ways that we hadn't, we, we've always struggled with, and sometimes with things we didn't even realize. I, I do think that if God uh, was to show us all of our sin, uh, we wouldn't be able to cope with it at all, would we? So over our lives in his mercy, he reveals to us sin, uh, and we, as we read his word, uh, so that we can repent of our sin. Well, in the book of Nehemiah, the people have, have, have seen the book of the law brought out, 
uh, in chapter 8. They've seen their sin. They've confessed it in chapter 9. And as we come to chapter 10, they strike while the iron is hot and make commitments to repent of the sin that has been revealed to them in God's word. And confession of sin and repentance are linked together. It's no good confessing our sin to God and having no intention of repenting of our sin. Repentance is to, is to turn from our sin and to God. And without the commitment to do that, any confession of sin really does ring hollow, doesn't it? And what we see in chapter 9 and verse 38 and following is the people of God committing to repentance of sin as it's been revealed to them in God's word with a binding agreement which they affix their seals to. And it's from chapter 9, verse 38, that I've taken uh, my title for this sermon this evening, which I've called Affixing Our Seals. It's, it's there in chapter 9 and verse 38. So in that verse, the, the chronicler, the writer of this account says, in view of all this. That's how he begins, in view of all this. That means in view of the word of God showing them their sin and them confessing it to God, in view of all of that, they make a binding agreement. Uh, the word here for agreement in the Hebrew is, has the same root as the word for covenant, which is often used in the Old Testament. A covenant is a serious promise or commitment. Uh, a bit like a marriage in that regard. It's that serious, a binding, solemn, serious, permanent commitment. Like the covenants made on Mount Sinai when the law was given. And notice in that verse, in verse 38 of chapter 9, that they put the agreement in writing. That means there's no arguing about what the agreement might mean, no debates about uh, what was said or not said. It means that it's a permanent record of the agreement. Again, when we marry someone, there's a, a wedding certificate, which is a legal document, not just so that you remember who you've married, but so that it shows the seriousness of what has taken place. And it shows the permanence of what has happened. And then notice how the leaders, the Levites and the, 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 and the priests, affix their seals to it. Now, to affix a seal means that they sign it. Uh, throughout history, legal documents were not signed in pen and ink, but they were rather sealed with a wax seal. And even today, in our country, when a law of parliament is enacted, it receives from the queen the great seal of the realm on a document. I've got a picture of, that's the, the queen's, uh, our current queen's seal. And she affixes that to the legal documents that parliament passes and once she affixes that seal, that becomes law in our land. And that's been true throughout history. Uh, it goes a bit, it's a bit more, a bit cooler, isn't it, than uh, just the signature. 
So to affix a, a seal on a document or agreement makes it legally binding. It shows a, a commitment to that agreement. And so in this section, we're going to examine what this binding agreement was and who affixed their seals to it. And the passage does the reverse of what I've just said. It first of all explains the people involved in affixing the seals. And then secondly, it shows us the promises invoked. So the people involved and the promises invoked. The people involved. In verses 1 to 27, we see another list of names preserved for us. Uh, these names are the names of the community leaders. In other words, the commitment was led from the front. So there's Nehemiah at the beginning, who was the governor. And then we see a list of priests. And then from verse 9, Levites. And then verse 14, the leaders of the people, which would have been the heads of families or of clans. So this binding agreement was not one where the leaders tell everyone else to abide by it and then don't bother themselves. And you've seen, haven't we, the uproar in our nation when leaders legislate on public health restrictions for everyone else and then have been found not to keep them themselves. That's not right. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, the leaders here of God's people affix their seals to it. They are held accountable. They commit, we will uh, affix our seals, we will keep this binding agreement. We will lead on this ourselves. And so when we get to verse 28, we see the leaders have affixed their seals, and then they are followed by the rest of the people. That's the whole community. Look again at verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the, Lord, the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. So in addition to the priests and Levites who we've already read of, we see other groups, uh, the temple servants and gatekeepers and so on. But then we read of those who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples. That is speaking of those who have committed to walking God's ways rather than the ways of the people around them. For us today, that would mean the Christians. Christians are those who are uh, the church of God. The church literally means the called out ones. We have been called out of the world and are separate from the neighboring peoples in the sense that although we live among them, we walk God's ways, not the ways of this world. And again, notice in verse uh, 28 how it includes men, women, and children. 
The sons and daughters who are able to understand are speaking of children. Just as we saw this in chapter 8, preaching there was not 18 rated, neither is repentance. Children need to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. At the level that they can understand, they need to repent of sin. Now, I've heard people speak of the innocence of children. I'm assuming they mean, and there is a point to this, that there is a sense that there's a lot that they haven't been exposed to and and shouldn't be exposed to as children and, and young people. But if they mean the innocence of children, that children don't really sin, I don't think they have children. (laughs) Because all of us know, don't we, that we don't have to be taught to sin. We know it all by ourselves. And the children here are not innocent. They are sinners in need of God's mercy, and they too affix their seals to the binding agreement. They commit In verse 29, the men, women, and children of the land joined the leaders, the nobles, in binding themselves. And notice how seriously they took it. They were bound with a curse and an oath. That's reminiscent of the covenant ceremonies in the book of Deuteronomy. They were agreeing that the curses of the law apply to them if they break the agreement. And the oath is a solemn Uh, commitment to keeping it. Well, how were they to keep this binding agreement? Notice at the end of verse 29, they were to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. So what we see here is this, a whole community of God's people repenting of sin and committing together to doing whatever it takes to obey the law of the Lord their God. And in the New Testament, the people of God is the church of Jesus Christ. And we are a community of people who constantly are repenting of sin and committing together to do what it takes to obey the Lord our God. The God who has forgiven us of our sins and given us new life. And there are different ways, I think, that today as New Testament Christians, we commit in these kind of ways. First of all, there is the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of what God has done in saving us from our sin. It's a public testimony to the church and to the world. And in this sense, it's a line in the sand, if you like. It shows your commitment to Christ in obedience to his word. Now in our church, when we baptize somebody, one of the people putting the believer under the water asks them two questions. We say, number one, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins? And they will say, yes, Otherwise, they go out (laughs) up the steps. The second question to which they also must say yes, if they're going to be baptized, do you commit to following him as your Lord? To which they say yes. And on the affirmative answer to those two questions, we baptize them. 
So baptism in this sense is like a binding agreement in verse 38 of chapter 9, where we, if you like, affix our seals to the kingdom of God. It shows that we are committed. Secondly, and more locally, we have a commitment to a local church fellowship where we become members. In the New Testament, Christians meet as localized groups of Christians, don't we? And as believers, we commit to local family groups of Christians. And in our church, we make membership commitments, yes, to each other, a binding agreement to one another. In this sense, we are affixing our seals to this particular fellowship of God's people. And then the final way in which I believe we, we show this kind of affixing our seals is when there are times in our individual lives where God does reveal sin to us as individuals that requires us to make personal commitments to him. In one sense, this is kind of every day as we confess our sins and, and make commitments of repentance. But another way that we do this is the Lord's table, isn't it? We come to the Lord's table and we recommit again to say that we believe that what Jesus has done on the cross is enough to save us from our sins. I believe that he has done this for me. And we commit again to following him as our king in the weeks ahead. All of these things, baptism, church membership, personal repentance and the, the Lord's Supper, are demanded of all of God's people, whether they are men, whether they are women, and at times when they are children. Just to make a mention of children being baptized and having the Lord's Supper and so on, in our church we practice believers' baptism. That is, we believe that those who are baptized in Scripture are people who, in the words of this passage, are able to understand. And so we don't have an age that we baptize people, but we do as elders assess the understanding and then we pray for wisdom about whether it's right to baptize someone based on that understanding. So what we see here is a, a peop, the people involved, the, the whole community. And the whole community in verse 29 agree to obey God's commands, regulations, and decrees. And for us today, we are a community of God's people who should together be committed to following what God's word says together. It's not just something, by the way, for a certain percentage of the members. We've got some hardcore ones here who will follow what God says and, and some over here will we'll do it sometime. No, this is the whole community serious about the word of God. And so in verses 30 to 39 of chapter 10, though, we see the promises invoked. And there are three specific promises in these verses that were specific problems that the children of Israel had over their history. And the first promise was this, that they would marry according to God's design. Marrying according to God's design. We see this 
in verse 30. So in verse 30, look at what uh, it says there. We promise, so notice the commitment there to this specific thing, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. So they promise not to marry the unbelieving people around them. The point here is that they were only going to marry within the family of faith. Now we're going to go on to the reasons for this when we reach chapter 13 of Nehemiah because it comes up there uh, in, in more detail. But what I want you to see here is that there is a commitment, a promise to hand over their sex lives to God's pattern. God's pattern in Scripture is that sex is a gift from him to be enjoyed in marriage, which is defined as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment. And just like in Nehemiah's day, this is a counter-cultural, radical belief that puts us at odds with the world around us. And we're bombarded with the world's view of sex and their worship of it, that it's a battle, isn't it, to stay faithful to God in our sexual lives. Because sex and marriage are so linked in God's pattern, we can apply this verse further than just saying, don't marry an unbeliever. Part of our commitment to following Jesus is to commit to purity in our lives, regardless of whether we're married or not. So this means saying no to watching sexual activities in movies or looking at pornographic images on screens. It means modesty in our dress that doesn't cause people to stumble and so on. And to our young people, I would say uh, this in regards to verse 30 as well. I think it would be a really, really good thing for you to make a commitment and even write it down and say, I will not get involved in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. You're never too young to make a commitment. Even write it down and give it to someone else that you give permission to come to you and show you that when you're struggling and tempted. The commitments made here were not just the adults. They were the sons and daughters as well. So first of all, they promised to marry according to God's design. Secondly, they promised to live according to God's diary. In verse 31, there is a commitment to keeping the Sabbath. God had commanded his people to take one day off a week where they would do no work. But the people had not been doing this. They'd been trading on the seventh day. They'd also not kept the seventh year Sabbath of not working the land and cancelling debts. And you can read about those things in the, the book of Leviticus. The people had been prioritizing the worship of them, uh, uh, not prioritizing the worship of God, but they'd been living according to their own schedules. And for us, a commitment to following Jesus is a commitment to giving him our diaries as well. We should give, for example, time in our days to relationship with God in Bible reading and prayer. 
We should give time to other people in serving them. We should put in our diaries the church services and the prayer meeting. We should put in our diaries times to rest, time with family, and so on. This is all part of our worship of God. Not keeping the Sabbath is worship of self. It's telling God that we don't need to stop or that we don't want to stop because we want to live our own way. Rather, commit your lives to God's diary, making God's diary your diary. Put, put God, the things of God in first and then slot things around that rather than the other way around. Don't give God the leftovers of your time. Give him the best that you have. Make a commitment even today to coming to church and to prayer meeting regularly. Again, you're not too young for this. This is for us all, living according to God's diary. And then finally, the last commitment is in giving to God's dwelling place. Uh, John Wesley is supposed to have said, that the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. And here we see the need to commit to giving to the work of the house of God. In verses 32 to 39, the phrase house of God is repeated seven times. And we see twice the phrase that the people assume the responsibility of giving their resources towards the functioning of it. In these verses, though, we do see some principles about our giving to the work of the house of God in terms of the church as the dwelling place of God today. First of all, we see that we are to give regularly. In verse 32, the people commit to giving a third of a shekel each year, a third of a shekel. Uh, The point here is that there was a regular contribution for the work of the house of God and they gave it regularly every single year. Uh, Verse 33 uh, outlines that work that was going on and and, and the people gave each year so that it could happen. Now people often ask, uh, one of the questions I get asked the most by unbelievers, in fact it might even be the number one question when they find out uh, about, about the church is, how do you fund the church? How do, how do you get paid? How do, how do you keep things going? And non-Christians, are re- they really genuinely are amazed when I say that we live off the contributions from the Lord's people who generously give to the work that goes on here. And that they, they just they, they can't believe what people give. What, they, they, they give so that you can employ people and that you can run all the things you run and do all those different... Yeah, people do. Because people give regularly. People assume responsibility. Well, in verse 34, we see that the people who, get, who work in the temple also give to the work of the temple. So the, the paid employees of the church don't get off. Uh, we also are commanded to give... We're not exempt, we're to give just like everybody else. But also in verse 34, we see that at set times each year, people were responsible for bringing a unique contribution. In this case, it was of of wood to burn. 
at various times, they would uh, cast lots, and it was someone's turn to bring the wood to put on the fire. Now, for us, that might be the equivalent of bringing something for the, the shared tea, when we, 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 if we ever have that again, uh, or uh, the gift days we have and things like that, extra times of, 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 of giving that we would have as a church. So the point here in those verses is that the principle is we, we give regularly to the work of the house of God. Uh, secondly, give early. In verses 35 and 36, we see that the people assume responsibility for bringing the first fruits of crops and the firstborn sons and animals for the service of the temple. Now, in the law of Moses, the firstborn crops were given to the Lord as a sacrifice, as were the firstborn animals. Now, the firstborn son wasn't sacrificed, but they were given to serve in the temple or brought back at a price, and the money then was given to the work of the temple. The point here is that God got the first of what the people were blessed with. It showed their thankfulness to God for providing. It prioritized the giving to the work of God, and it removed the temptation to procrastinate in that giving. And so for us, the principle is that we should give as soon as we are able. Some people think, well, I'll start giving when I have enough. You might think especially that as a young person. But rather, the biblical principle here is to give what you can as soon as you can. Start small and build up, but give as soon as your paycheck comes in. If you don't do that, then the money will end up, no doubt, getting swallowed up in other things. That's, a, that's my experience. If we don't give early, when we get paid, there's always something else that will come along that can take up the money. So give early, as soon as you can, the first fruits. And then finally, uh, give generously. Uh, in verse 37 uh, to 39, we read of other gifts, various other gifts that were given by the people. But notice this in verse 37. The people were committed to giving the first of our ground meal, and so on. Now notice that word there, first, first. Elsewhere in the NIV, in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 19, Moses speaks there of the first fruits, and he says this, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. The word that Moses uses there, best, is the exact same word the NIV translates here as first. And I think best is what is meant here. Bring the best of your ground meal, the best of your wine, and so on and so forth. I remember um, in our church in Devon, where we were part of, there was a, an elderly lady there who was a, a missionary with her husband in the Amazon uh, in Brazil. And as a, missionary, as a missionary couple, they were church planting. They would go down the Amazon in, a, in their little boat uh, and stop off at different tribes and stay there for a very long time uh, and plant uh, churches as they shared the gospel among these tribes uh, people in the Amazon. And uh, this lady was telling me some of the things people would send them as gifts on the mission field. And one of the gifts 
that she would regularly receive was used tea bags. Used tea bags. Can you believe it? People would uh, make their cup of tea. Uh, one particular person hung their tea bags out and sent them to the mission field because the missionaries can use the, the used tea bags. Now, I'm sure uh, she was appreciative of the thought, but you can see, surely, that that wasn't perhaps the best that they could give. Didn't the missionary deserve a, a non-used tea bag so that she could even use it twice? I think we get the point. We want to be able to give the best, don't we? The best that we have for our God. How often do we give God and his people the leftovers of things? The things that cost us absolutely nothing. And I think we can apply this not just to money and possessions, though. We, in our service of the Lord, in, in all aspects, shouldn't we give our best to our King? We're supposed to be putting God's glory on display as a church, aren't we? What does it say about God if we're just shoddy in our service? Now, I'm not saying, don't mishear me, that everything has to be perfect all the time. One person's best is, is different from another's. I'm saying that whatever service we render should be the best that we can possibly give. But as well as quality of giving, the best we have... Uh, verses 37 to 39 also do speak of quantity. In verse 32, there was a legislated amount of money, the, the third of the shekel. But in addition to that here, we read of tithes and other contributions. There was a, a generosity in the contributions that are being made here for the running of God's house. And generosity is important in our attitude. Giving to the church is not paying a bill like we do to the council. It's not paying a subscription like we do to, to Netflix or the club that we go to. Giving to God's work is an act of worship that enables all of us to worship. And so should be done with joy. For God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? At the end of verse 39... Notice what the people said in their commitment. We will not neglect the house of God. And if you looked at your bank statements, or rather you were to show it to somebody else, would they see a commitment to the house of God? Or would they see a neglect of the house of God? Now in the New Testament, we're not given a specific amount that we have to give, like the Old Testament people were. We're told to be generous and cheerful in our giving. And the examples that we see in the, in the New Testament shows that giving, the giving was sacrificial. It cost something. So rather than thinking of a percentage, a better question might be to ask, what, am I not able to do something that I would otherwise do because I am giving this money? That might be a good way of judging. If your lifestyle is no different whatsoever, then are you really giving generously to the work of God? It's, a, it's not a diktat from me. That's a question to ask yourselves and, and challenge yourselves with. But let's, as God's people, be committed not just to giving lip service to our commitment to him, but assume responsibility for the church 
and put our money where our mouth is. Well, I think all of us can, as we read this passage, recommit ourselves, can't we? We can reaffix our seals to the commitment of following Jesus in all of these areas. Let's not treat our Christian commitment like a fading New Year's resolution. Let us day by day live to serve our King in repentance and faith. And the Lord's table is the perfect place, isn't it, to recommit to doing that? As we look again at the commitment that Jesus has to his Father's will and to us as his people, we are compelled, aren't we, to commit in return to following him wholeheartedly? Well, our final song before we come to the Lord's Supper examines Jesus' commitment. It looks at the great cost, the sacrifice that he made, and then helps us think about what our response should be. Let's stand together as we sing, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth. Faithful a friend 
Uh, take your seats and let's just have <clears throat> a moment of quiet uh, just as we respond to what we've heard tonight and what we've just sung uh, and then we'll come uh, before the Lord's table so let's just have a moment of, of quiet. 